Hi, this is Lincoln Mitchell, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. And I'm the Drinks with Tony Show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Lincoln A. Mitchell. He's the author of San Francisco Year Zero, Political Upheaval, Punk Rock, and a third-place baseball team. Lincoln, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's good to be here chatting with you. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Oh, my, oh so I got a kick out of the book because... There's a few things about it that I really dug. One is how much we need context to 1978 in order to really understand everything that was happening. And that I felt like you really pulled up. I'm glad you said that because that was something I really wanted to do in the book. You know, there are a lot of good books about Milk, Moscone, Jonestown. I'm not sure they do all the things I do, but you can get a good sense of that. And to write a political science book about that and the impact it has on, on San Francisco is a... It's a... 30,000 word essay that you can't place somewhere and it also doesn't help people who weren't there and who maybe weren't old enough to have been there so I chose punk rock and baseball because they kind of filled in different aspects of the context baseball and and frankly I'm a huge baseball fan so that's one of the reasons I chose baseball but in 1978 the Giants were the story here they were in first place all summer they were exciting they were drawing a lot of fans they had Vita Blue Willie McCovey was back and if the year had ended October 31st, that would have been the story. And then this thing in North Beach called Punk Rock was revitalizing what had been, what had become this kind of old and a bit moribund hippie culture. You know, how many more Jefferson Starship now concerts can you see? And once you really care about Carlos Santana's latest guitar solo, and there was this kind of really dynamic, exciting thing, which we don't talk about enough in San Francisco because of the kind of hegemony of the summer of love generation and culture. Yeah, and that's that's what I, I mean, because I, I was actually alive, you know, in 78, and I think there's probably a photo of me somewhere with my Giants jersey on, probably because they were doing good, and I, you know, I didn't have much of a clue at the time, then later, you know, I became a Giants fan. I don't know, how is it with you, because you're in, like, New York now, Can, do you stay Giants fan, or how do you affiliate these days? Well, history is complicated. I get a little bit, I think, in the book, or maybe that's a book I'm working on now, but anyway, my, uh, my grandfather who was really influential in my youth, and my mom were Yankees fans growing up. My grandfather became a Dodgers fan in 1947. He was living in New York at the time because of the politics of Jackie Robinson and that many people on the kind of activist left became Dodgers fans because they were uh, committed to civil rights back then, so Robinson was how you, you know, it was important. My mom never did. She stayed a Yankees fan. We came out here, but she wasn't a big baseball fan, and then the Giants were the team, and... In retrospect, you know, she could give my brother and I six bucks each, and that would be the Ballpark Express, an upper deck ticket, and food. And that was pretty cheap childcare if you were a single mom with, with two young kids. So starting around 77, when I was nine, we would go out to the ball games, my older brother and I and some friends. So I became a big Giants fan. And we're going to remain fans of both teams, you know, through today. And, man, those the days where you can actually go to a Giants game and not, like, break the bank. I mean, it's such a... I, I don't know what we're in now that just... And even in real dollars, even if you, even in 1978 dollars, you know, or, or if you want to, what, what, $36 was worth then is about 40 bucks a day, not 130 bucks, which is right. what... And, and that, baseball had a different feel because of that. And, and that's kind of, I, I'm not sure I would have fallen in love with the game if it had been the way it is now. 
not just on the field, but off the field. Like, I loved going to Candlestick Park and having nobody there and having it be relatively quiet. And by the time I was, you know, 15 or 16 or 17, you could go there on a Saturday or a Sunday after a long Friday or Saturday night and kind of hang out. It's almost like being in a cafe and you could, you know, you, I'm a pretty intense fan, so I didn't have to watch that closely and follow the game and read the sporting green and, you know, kind of hang out. And it was cheap. And now, and it wasn't loud, and it was just kind of a mellow strand. And the team, by the time I was in high school now, we're talking 82 through 85, with the exception of 82, they were pretty bad. So it's kind of, you, weren't, you know, there was no one there. The team was going to lose anyway. It's a different feel. And it's a very, now it's, now of course the Giants are good, but even when they're bad, it's sold out. It's expensive. And, and this deep commitment on MLB from top to bottom to separating you from your money at every step of the way, which just makes it kind of unpleasant. And that's and now the experience you can't have the experience on your own as a kid unless you're making a ton of unless your parents are really dropping dime on you and you can go. Yeah, I don't know how that is, and I don't want to get too much into being a grouchy old man here, you know, because oh, that's 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 what we do best over here. But, you know, I have two sons who are uh, they love baseball. They were baseball players, very serious baseball players, and and they I remember saying to them at one point they were like 14. Now they're 18 and 20, but I was saying you know wow you've never gone to a game without me. Yeah. Now partially because I love going to the games. But also, Yankee Stadium is much more expensive than here. Is it? Oh, yeah. So it, it's very expensive. Now, the way they would, the way if, I mean, the only way my kids, you know, would go to a game on their own is if someone, like if some wealthy friend, like, had, they've done that. You know, or if they, like, got a ticket through some free thing. But it is, it is different. It's very different. And, you know, it's a bigger, and, and that, the game that, you know, in 78, it was, you know, Candlestick Park was out there in the southeastern corner of the city. If you didn't live out there, it was tough to get to. Yeah. It was, the ballpark was surrounded, for those who don't remember, by a huge parking lot. Ten or 15,000 cars could park there, which meant that you couldn't walk anywhere interesting from there. If you walk for half an hour, you're still in the parking lot. You know, so it was this kind of isolated, away from it all feeling, but it was also a bit down at the heels and very inexpensive. And the ballpark wasn't fancy. It was kind of falling apart at times. You know, it used a makeover, which it never got. And this gave it a different feel, even when the team was winning. Yeah, yeah it's... Oh, I sound like a grouchy old man here, but, 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 <laughs> but um, and then and then uh, we're, uh, when you when I really liked how you covered the punk rock scene because I mean I kind of grew up a little bit around it, but more in the late '80s, and so I like the way you I like the way you gave context to a lot of things, like I you know how how important the dead Kennedy's name was at the time. That's just one thing that's like you know great, and I and I, I even had crime on my show. Uh, when I was doing it at uh, radio, uh, Pirate Cat Radio years ago, I just had the whole band on the show. I didn't even know their legacy until after. But Yeah, and the punk rock's in here. And, and I've had people from other cities say, I wasn't even aware of San Francisco's punk rock scene, which really struck because I grew up here. I wasn't aware of any other cities. I'm as vaguely aware of the Ramones and CBGB and that kind of thing. But it was, it was an important cultural transition here. It was the post-Summer of Love generation raising its head and saying, hey, what about us for the first time? And it also was different here, which I talked about in the book quite a bit, because it was much more explicitly political. Yeah. Scene in New York was not. They didn't do fundraiser for striking coal miners in New York. You know, the only, you know, the Ramones, which are the kind of leading New York City punk rock band, the only time they really did anything that could be called political was Bonzo Goes to Bitburg, that song. But that was about Reagan going to Bitburg. And that was a, and I talked about this a lot in the book, that was a Jewish response. It was not a left-wing or an angry punk rock response. Like, my grandfather felt that way, you know? Um, but, but here, and it's just thinking of Dad Kennedy's, I, I think it's hard today because we've now had, we've been a shock value just taken on it. But this was a time 
where if someone had a tattoo and they weren't in the Navy, that was considered weird. Just think of, you know, if you saw somebody now in any major city, you see somebody in their 50s, 60s, 20s, teens with dyed hair, you don't think twice. But back then it was shocking, right? So, and then Dead Kennedys, you know, remember that, that they played their first show fewer than 15 years after Jack Kennedy had been assassinated and just about a decade after Bobby had been killed. So this is a fresh thing. And I always thought it was extremely, right, I write about this, but one, it was a way, you know, the dead Kennedys, or the, dead, the, 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 the Kennedy brothers were that kind of early baby boomer generation worshipped them, right? They were the symbols of the hope of the new generation and all of that. So to mock that, but also a lot of working class Catholic people, right? And in this town, there were a lot of them at that time. So it was a very broad, broadly sweeping way to offend everybody. And, and they did, and that was part of what they were trying to do. But it had an enormous impact on, on I think, remaking the city at that time. Yeah. Well, I mean, it would have been such a trip if they didn't name themselves the Dead Kennedys. They, you know, they, they, were, they came up with another name. Do you think they would have uh, hit off as well? I don't know. Branding is important. Yeah, it is. It's crazy. <laughs> Branding is very important. And in, I mean, this is a broader kind of social scientific argument, but... I believe that in fields like music, film, literature, where so much is subjective, and what's really the difference between the best novel this year and the 20th best novel? They're both really good, right? So how do you break out? Well, you have a clever name, you have a clever look, something like that. And the, D the Dead Kennedys, the branding was great because one, you had the shock value, and then you had DK, a clever way to shorten it, and, and I'm, I'm, this is a podcast, but the way they could write it and that kind of... So they really did that very well, and, and that, that certainly helped them emerge from, you know, a, a, a group of all, you know, it's relatively comp comparable bands that had to become the most, and, and they marketed themselves well, and Jello uh, Biafra, the leader, had a real sense of how to do that. Yeah. Well, and, then, and then he started Alternative Tentacles, which is a great record label, and, you know. And you ran for mayor in 79, which is very important, yes. I, and I, I think I found that out when I was, you know, in the 80s. I was like, oh, wait, this is, he ran for, wow. You know, it was, everything was blowing my mind, though, because I was buying a record, you know. I was like, what is a sex pistol? Brought it home, hid it from my parents so they wouldn't know that I bought anything that had sex on it, and that grew from there, you know. And his mayor's campaign, I mean, I, I, I had a, I remember the 75 race, the Moscone Barber Gelato race, which was the, I was a young child, but it was the first race, first election I really remembered. And uh, one of the reasons I remember it is because I was going to Catholic school at the time. I'm Jewish, but I was going to Catholic school at the time, and most of the kids there were supporting John Barbara Gelato. who was very conservative, kind of like the, a proto-Giuliani type character. And he had a funny name, Barbara Gelato. And I came home and told my, my brother and I came home and told my mom that, that Barbara, so he says something about Barbara Gelato. And she said, oh, we're supporting the other guy. So the other guy was Moscone. And so that's how, but so I knew, and then he won. And of course, I remember the assassinations. And, and in 79, you know, Moscone had been killed, and, and, and so, and Feinstein was running for re-election, and nobody challenged her from the left. There was no, you know, the progressive mayor had been killed. Harvey Milk, who was beginning to be cultivated to be the next guy, was killed. Cal Ruth Silver and Willie Brown, who, Willie Brown was at that time a real progressive, but they were not quite ready to run. They didn't feel they were ready, so there was, so she was only challenged, we think of Feinstein as a centrist, or even in the context of San Francisco, more of a center-right mayor, but she was only challenged in 79 from further right in the person of Quentin Copsa was there was opening on the left. And Jello came in and filled that opening. Now, he was never going to win. But it wasn't all a joke, right? And, and if you don't believe that, 4%, it sounds like, well, he got drubbed. He only got 4%. But 4%, when you don't spend any money. Yeah. And, and the one thing people know about you is you play in a band called Dead Kennedys. 
And I promise you that 4% of registered voters in San Francisco in 1979, that was the number of punk rockers maybe who were registered voters, maybe 0.04% of the electorate. So it was a very, so these, there were a lot of people, maybe as a protest vote, but also he, it was, he was putting his punk spin on what was an emerging progressive vision of, of urban America. Uh, you know, things like, things like, one of the things he talked about was having police have to run for office run to be police in their precincts, you know, um, which was a, you know, it's not very impractical, right, if you think it through, but it's not, politically, it's, it's, it's a good idea in that it talks about community policing, and that you're here to be in this community, do something for these people, not what was very common in that era, and well, well for decades later, in parts of America, even today, where the police sees itself as a kind of occupying army. We're here in this inner city community to bang heads and uh, get things straight, and we're not here to take any shit. Well, no, actually, you're here to work for the people who live here. And if you don't have their confidence, you shouldn't be here. So Jello was kind of exploring some of those ideas. Some of his ideas were a little goofier. He had one idea that was to raise money. This is in 79, mind you. He wanted to build statues of Dan White around San Francisco and then sell eggs and tomatoes for people to throw at the statues of Dan White as, as a way to raise money. That was, I think, not as serious an idea. So he was, it was, uh, Joel Selvin said it was a goof, but only half a goof. And I think that's about right with Jell-O's uh, mayor race. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's intriguing. What, what, got you in, what got you into politics? What, was, what, what sparked your fire when you were young? You know, I, was, I grew up in a family where we were, everyone was interested in politics. Oh, really? and, and, you know, San Francisco then was a much more conservative and much more divided city than it is now. And growing up where I did, going to the schools I went to, it was very far from a progressive consensus. Yeah. So I always felt like I was aware that, that I was from a different background and had different views. Yeah. So that, that kind of got me interested. And then... Um, I think there's a lot of things. I think that the part of me that was an obsessive baseball fan, the part of your brain that remembers batting average is the same part of your brain that thinks about polling data. You know, so, so that kind of, that, that, that side was activated. It was a way to take, you know, I was never going to be a baseball player, but it was a way to take competition and put it in a field where it was strategic and intellectual, but also important. So I, and I, you know, I was involved in campaigns and ran campaigns for many years. And, and, um, and then I began, you know, reading, teaching, studying it. And so that, that also kind of brought me in. And then I wanted to kind of bring those skills to bear on looking at San Francisco, which is, in my view, a very important city, but one that, and, and the book, you know, I don't think the book, I wouldn't call the book a dry academic book, but there are, I do bring some academic perspectives in there, you know, to kind of look at what, why, essentially, why is San Francisco the city that it is? Why is it such this odd, seemingly odd combination of so many different things that to try to give a, rather than just tell a story with the characters, to give a theory about why that happened. So, so that, that kind of tried bringing my academic background to bear on this, but to tell a story in a way that you don't have to be a you know, grad student in political science to appreciate. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm the complete opposite of that, so that helped. Thank you. <laughs> but, um, and also, there was, one, uh, there was one stat you brought up in there that really stuck out for me was that the murder rate in San Francisco, I think it was, it was the same as New York, except we had a tenth of the population. Right. Am I getting that right? Population here. Yes, and this is something that when I tell the people in New York, they get angry at me. I mean, really, they're like, we got the murder oh, rate, man. Absolutely right. It's absolutely what they are like. I mean, you're not, you think you're being funny, but that is what they are like. Um, and, and it is, this was at that time a dangerous city. It was dangerous. We're here in San Francisco. It was dangerous. It was empty. 
they were about, in, in 1978, probably 660,000 people here. Today, there's closer to a much closer, almost a million. And there had been 750 in 1950. So the population had been declining pretty steadily since 1950. It was empty. There was, the economy was very bad. And, and that helps, again, set the context for what was going on uh, in, in the late 1970s. And that how it came from there to here is, is an important story. But people outside of San Francisco, to a great extent, particularly older people in the back of their heads, this is still, oh, sunny California, hippies, everything is easy. And that's really a mischaracterization historically of the city. I think it's even, well, I, I talk to people in Los Angeles who I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going up to San Francisco. I'm going to walk over dog poop and see people shooting up. And they're like, oh, that's a funny joke. And I'm like, no, I'm going, I mean, not dog poop. I'm human feces. I'm going to walk over human feces and bodies and see people shooting up. It's a fucking zombie land up there. And they're like, they have no context for it. Right. And, and, and with all that, it's still much safer than it was in the 1970s, which is the strange thing, right? I mean, the homelessness situation in, in San Francisco is a current uh, crisis that did not exist quite like that in the 1970s. Yeah. But the violent crime here is way down yeah. compared to then, which again, you know, the, one of the p- aging makes that you hard to, makes it hard to remember. No one, no one who's, you know, 50s or 60s is saying, oh, this is much less violent than it was when I was a kid, but it was. Yeah. And, and that just doesn't resonate with how we age. We always think things were better when we were younger, but right. it wasn't in all respects. And maybe it's the heroin. People are tired. Yeah, heroin. I mean, no, that, that is a, you know, if a people are addicted to heroin, are going to behave differently than people are addicted to crack. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is the truth. Yeah. So, and not to not to say that one is better than the other, but if you like to choose, heroin is okay. So I don't. Yeah. So I don't get mugged. Don't recommend either. I mean, that would be my approach. But but as far as what effect is going to have on the crime rate, it is true. I mean, you know. Um. And then, uh, you're in, you're in New York right now. So yeah. what's what's it like? Uh, well, I guess you're explaining to New Yorkers what San Francisco is, and San Francisco is like. Uh, from what I have seen in my, because I'm from here, so in my limited around the world, like we just talked about what other people see it, how does New York see San Francisco? Because you've been there for a while, so you kind of... I mean... And, and just just uh, represent all of New York, right. and then they'll be really mad at you. <laughs> of course. I mean, to some extent, it's like what I was saying earlier about New Yorkers, can't, like they're angry when you say oh, there was a higher murder rate here. They still think, you know, and the thing about the worst in many parts of New York now, the worst thing that will happen is like your Uber will show up late, right? It's become, a, in many parts, a wildly safe city. Um, and, I mean, there was just a tragic, very tragic murder a few blocks from my house, but one of the most striking things about it was how much attention one murder got compared to 25, 30 years ago where it was just, we were six murders a day in, in New York City. So, uh, but, but New Yorkers, especially older ones, still have that image of themselves. And San Francisco now is, it is the image of the homelessness, the human uh, feces on the street, and the tech money. And, and very l- much, much less awareness of kind of that whole western half of San Francisco. Just middle class, it's white, working class whites, it's, it's Asian. It's, you know, very, it, it, the houses are expensive, but it's not like fancy expensive. It's just the real estate has driven the price of everything up. And very little awareness of San Francisco as a working city. Um, and very little awareness of, of its history kind of, pr- you know, it's, it's as if it's, you're, for many people, I think it's true anywhere in the world, San Francisco is gold rush, hippies, tech. Right, that's the ten seconds of San Francisco history: gold rush, hippies, tech, and and they forget about that. They forget everything else, and 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 they recognize that the Giants play the best ballpark in America. Is that true? Yeah, because I, I, I mean, the only ball, the only people that would seem to disagree are people in Pittsburgh, which has a great. I've never been there, but I've walked by it. It's a beautiful ballpark. But. Yeah, I watched the pit. I've seen the Pittsburgh games on TV, and I'm like, oh, I want to go there one yeah, day. I was there for a book event, but like we couldn't. I think that my event 
was scheduled. Actually, the A's were in town, but it was a night game the same night as my event, my previous book, so I couldn't go. Yeah. A lot of it's, yeah. Uh, and now, what do we call it now? It's. Uh, it's or No, no. Is it Oracle? It's oh, yeah. Oracle. Yeah, yeah. Tired of all these names on stadiums. It's driving me crazy, man. Yeah, it's, it feels. I mean, it, it's something. We take it for granted now, but it, it's a very strong. I mean, it is literally buying language. Right, yeah. and and so if I you wearing a hat, if I paid you a million dollars, you would call it an elephant, right? I mean that's yeah. except there's obviously there's a commercial motivation for it, but it is strange. I mean, Candlestick Park was Candlestick Park forever, and then it was Three Com, and then it was Monster Field, but it was still Candlestick Park. I mean, if you lived here, now this is different because Oracle Park because they change every few years anyway, so it has no history, you know. And I, in and that sense, it has no history. It's interesting how uh, how you phrased it, and I forgot how you phrased it. Oh, they're putting words into it. It's like someone was telling me about Chase Stadium, and I'm like, do you realize that we're talking about a bank and a credit card company while we would discuss the Warriors? Right, exactly. Yeah, and, and, and it is often banks. It's City Field, which is where the Mets play. And the only teams that don't, to their credit, are Yankees, which still play in Yankee Stadium because the brand branding it that way is more valuable than selling it to somebody and because other events they don't do it much but there's a certain there's a status associated with doing something in yankee stadium so so if you're i don't know like one of the soccer leagues the kind of newer growing soccer leagues in new york the team home team plays in yankee stadium and that's a big name so that but that's an exception fenway's fenway park but for the most part and it just you know there's a lot of money in baseball and and this is i guess one way to bring more money in but it does take some of the character away to name, name it after a neighborhood, a famous person, a former right. something to do with baseball, you know. But it, you know, but what are you gonna do? I mean, it's not a. Yeah, exactly. And then if you have a, you know, if you work at Oracle and you had a bad situation there and you got fired, and then you like, then you got to go to the park where your boss was a dick to you, but his name's on the right. thing. Yeah, right. And, and I tell you something else. When you write about it, it's. I mean, I and a couple times in the book, I went through and I wasn't sure. At what point, like, if I'm writing about the 2011 World Series, who I call it AT and T or Oracle. Right? At what point do, does it stop being AT&T and become Oracle? Because it's, it is the same place, right? So I use a lot of like the ballpark to kind of get around that. And it, I remember that 2010, and I, and I love it that you have the introduction of it, because my heart was like racing again like it was in 2010, because we actually got to the world. We weren't supposed to go to the World Series. It was, I mean, I was, I was out here and it was just gridlock traffic stop. The fire truck came out. I was like, oh shit, here comes, here comes everyone's going to stop all the fun. And the fire truck uh, had a, let's go Giants. They're like right on top of it. Too. Yeah, it was an amazing moment. And I was, I was actually overseas uh, the night they, they won, but I was Skyped into my brother and, and, and a friend here. But it was, you know, people, when you ask what people in New York think of San Francisco, people in New York assumed that they won a World Series here at some point when Mays and McCovey and serious baseball fans. No one realized it was been since 1954, and then not once since they'd been in San Francisco. It was an enormous uh, uh, deal for the city, and it really changed. I think changed the role of the Giants in this in this city. I mean, they were beginning of the 90s. I mean, the, the period I write about in the late 70s in this book is really, in some respects, the nadir of their existence. Those those three years, 74, 5, 6, and 7 were just horrible for that for that franchise. And then again, 83, 84, 85 were pretty bad too. But by the 90s, mid-90s, they were, they were become kind of the marquee franchise of the region. But they still hadn't ever actually won at all. And then in 2010, and then, and then bam, they won two more so fast. It, it was just remarkable. I mean, that, that whole run was so, to win, you know, three World Series when you were never favored to win any, to, to even make it to the postseason any of those years was pretty remarkable. 
and, and I think really changed the relationship between the team and the city. And I, I, th- I feel like there's a there was a perfect um, blend of personalities on that team. Where if it wasn't, I, we just you know we had the freak. We had a <laughs> there was just after 2012. We had a you know a, well, Aubrey Huff who's a bit of a lunatic now, but but was a good guy part of that. And uh, uh, a lot of those guys, Brian Wilson, fear the beard. It was, and and to some extent, I mean, I was always a big Barry Bonds fan. But if they had one in 2002 it would have been tarnished a little bit. Just like with the Red Sox. All those World Series is what it was, all those steroid guys. Until they finally, in 2018, won one without them. And it is, it does, I mean, if I were a Red Sox fan, that would kind of, at least with this team, we know there was no question of that. I mean, Tim Lincecum is way too small to ever, you know, there's no, you can't have that thought about him. You know, or say, you know, these guys. And you don't want to shrink a small guy's testicles like that on steroids if he's yeah, already small. speak to, uh, to Tim Lincecum's uh, testicles. Damn it! The whole plan of this whole interview was to talk about the one you wanted to to Instagram around the world, and I dodged it. Do you have you had situations where because you I mean you're, you're when you're doing interviews it's usually a political thing. Yeah. So are people when they're questioning you do they kind of come come at you with a angle of their point of view, hoping you'd go a different direction? For me, what's been strangest recently is I've done a couple, even this morning I was on Bloomberg, and I did a couple episodes, not episodes, but shots, hits on a Fox. And, you know, it's very common to have, I mean, for years I've been doing this, where they have someone with kind of on the right and me on the left, you know. But what happens now is that, is that the, instead of having a discussion about, I don't know, some agreed, the right person on the right begins by citing some facts that are just, the Democrats are looking bad because everyone knows that the, that the impeachment is a hoax. There's no response to that because the response is you're living in a fantasy world and I'm not going to visit that world. But no one wants – you can't say that on television. And that's become actually very difficult because you have to recognize that you're now going to interact with someone who's not grounded in reality. And that's, that's more difficult than someone who says, you know, this is what the tax rate should be. Or, for example, impeachment is hurting the Democrats. But 54 percent want Trump impeached and removed. That's bad for the Republicans, not for the Democrats. There's, you know, but, but if you pretend that number doesn't exist, you can go ahead and make your argument. You know, I think – for the most part, the problem I have doing political interviews for, for American politics is not, or even when I do international stuff, is not people trying to do gotcha stuff because I'm not famous enough for, like, I'm not a politician. No one wants to gotcha me. It's people don't know what, who, don't, who don't know enough, particularly when it's, you know, um, I do a lot of work in Georgia. So the Georgia-Russia war in 2008, you know, people don't know it. The questioner doesn't know anything about us. They don't even know what question to ask, and that makes it a little tough. And then... Um, the exception is Fox, which is a where they just kind of want to yell at you, and you know. It's a, well, it uh, the what do you call it? I don't like how, especially since Trump's come into office, I don't like that period. But I don't like how the um, our linguistics have changed, and even like people on social media are like, "Oh, look what I posted uh, to Trump," and I'm like, "You're having a conversation with a crazy person. Why are you indulging this?" And and that is. I think that's often overlooked. I mean, I've spent enough time around politicians to know that if you were – the one start of story that doesn't get told enough is that the people around Trump, like them or not, right, the Kellyanne Conways, the people like that, and some of the people whose names we don't know because they're not that high up, they're not that famous, spend a great deal of their time concealing, covering up, and kind of compensating for his incapacity, his mental and psychological. And I don't mean that – I don't mean that in like I'm making fun of him. Oh, he's crazy. I'm saying it in a serious way. And, and – what, what troubles me is that when, when Trump makes some statement or makes some tweet and the media covers it as president tweets this, president says that, what they really should be covering is 
mentally unstable person lies again. Right. That's the story. That's what that's and 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 to engage with the product of that is it's not news coverage, right? But but we have this we have this this problem because we, on the one hand, everyone what what the media wants to say is that we're balanced, but what they should want to say is that we're empirical, yeah. right? We are just reporting the facts. If you report now, if you report both sides, you're simply not reporting the facts, and that's that's troubling. I mean, this is far afield from the book, but if you look at the impeachment hearing, right? When you look at the Republicans, were saying, with the exception of Will Hurd, the Republican from Texas, member of the House, what they were saying was, this is there is no evidence. It was a perfect phone call. This is a complete hoax. Well, that's just simply not remotely true, right? They could say, if you're a Republican, you'd say, look, he made some mistakes, but it's not really something we should impeach him over. But that's, that's an opinion. And we can argue about opinion, but if you start out by stating things that are just that far from the truth, you can't, there's no common ground. There never will be common ground. And you can't say that that statement can, is that, that, that someone saying, well, we have all this evidence and I think he should be removed, is balanced by someone saying there's not a shred of evidence. Like one person is lying and one person isn't. It's, uh, it just blows my mind. I feel like it's communication across. It, it blows my mind on so many yeah, levels. Get worse before it gets better, and and that's what scares me because I feel like, I I feel like, um, I usually don't talk too much politics on the show because I don't know a lot about politics. But I do feel like we are we do have another four years of Trump in front of us. Please help me, um, and please. Please bring me back to... Uh, no, I think I, I would be careful about saying things like that because that's kind of what Trump wants you to believe. Yeah, so I'm going to tell you something that will make you feel a little better and then I'm going to yes. tell you something that will make you feel a lot worse. <laughs> so to make you feel a little better, right now, uh, all the polls show that most of the major Democratic candidates would either beat Trump or be extremely close. And we still have a ways to go. And most of the swing states show the same. So this is going to be very close. Um, the other thing Wait, I would, I got, which scares the shit out of me because it should not be this close. But the other thing is that, that, that no one is covering is that the, in every four years, just you know, thinking you never step in the same river twice, you never run in the same electorate twice because new people come in, people have turned 18, and some people die off. The people who have died because of the age, the demographics of the Trump voter were, were heavy Trump people. The newer voters demographically are heavy Democrats. So it's a, sl- it's a more Democratic electorate than four years ago. So that alone, so when people say we have to win back X, Y, Z, the truth, which is an unpopular thing to say, even a Democrat, we don't have to win back a single voter. Trump has to win voters over to him, assuming you have equal kind of turnout motivations on each side, which I think you will. The bigger issue is this. Okay, now is this the bad news coming? Can I just relax with the good news for a second? Um, all and before we get to the bad news, I was looking. I look at Vegas odds on yeah. like who's going to win, and they and they got Trump uh, really like they were high up on the odds. Because I'm sitting there going, who should I bet on to make, for a long shot? Who might make it? You were to take, you would take Trump over any individual Democrat because we don't know who the nominee is yet, oh. right? So if there's you know if there's a 40 percent chance of Trump and maybe there's a 15 percent chance of each of the top four nominees, you see what I'm saying? Okay. Okay. And now I'm going to brace myself and. Okay, so well, so here's the bad news. I'm you a quiz. Yes. It's a multiple choice quiz, even though you weren't a political science major. Yes. Okay, so you're watching the news here on election night, and you're in California. Yes. So 8, 8 o'clock, the polls close on the west coast of the United States. And 8.01, they project, uh, I'm doing a map here, but you can imagine Washington, the state of Washington, Oregon, and California in blue for the yeah. Democrat. And they say, now, I don't know who you're supporting. It doesn't matter for this argument. Senator so-and-so, vice president so-and-so, mayor so-and-so, whoever, is now the president-elect with 310 electoral votes. Right, and you're watching CNN or something. Everyone's at the party is clapping. So, what is the next tweet from Donald Trump? 
Option A, congratulations, Senator so-and-so, on a hard-fought battle. I look forward to working with you on a peaceful transition. This is what makes America great. Or option B, do not believe fake news CNN, widespread cheating and election fraud. I am the real winner. What's the answer to that question? Oh, my God, that's exactly. B. That's and that's scary. And then, and then within eight hours are the McConnells and the Lindsey Grahams and the MacArthur's tweeting, Mr. President, peaceful transitions are necessary in America. It's what makes our country strong and democratic. Please step aside and let or widespread voting. President is right. We need to look into this. And then forgetting Fox and the right wing media, think of the more uh, rational people, the CNN, New York Times, people like that. They're saying the election is disputed and controversial. It's not. It's stolen. Right. That's, I, and that's where we are. And the reason for that is simple. If, when, if George Bush, George W. Bush, had lost in 80, uh, 2004 you know, for re-election to John Kerry, what would have happened? He would have spent the rest of his life doing what he's doing now, which is you know, painting watercolors and going to Texas Rangers games, right? Yeah. I kind of wish he was just doing that back then, too. But. That's since, since way before then, but yes. <laughs> and if Obama had lost in 2012, he would have done more or less what he's doing now, right? What does Trump do? And the five people he cares about, he spends the rest of his life in legal hassles and eventually in jail. And he knows that. So he will do anything to stay in power. And, and when he says, you know, I, I didn't lose, we are in such uncharted waters at that point. And, and 40% of the country will believe him. So that's, that's you know, this, this uh, disastrous experience of, of Democratic rollback under Trump does not end with Trump leaving office gracefully. It does not. It cannot. So we have to be prepared for that. And that's a spotter for another podcast. Tell me about it. I'm, I'm usually so much lighter and lit, you know. <laughs> Let's get back to uh, what, 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 what's your favorite animal? <laughs> my favorite animal is my dog, Isis. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and, and, like, and when, did, when did you decide to move to New York? Because was, was, did you have a time where you're like, oh, I'll stay in San Francisco. No, let me bounce to New York. No, I, I graduated from college in 89, and I th- kind of thought I would stay here. You know, this would be home the rest of my life. I did not uh, get into graduate school at Stanford or Berkeley, and so I moved to New York to go to Columbia, and and then just kind of stayed there ever since. And you, te- and you teach there as well. I teach there now, yeah, and I have been on and off for a very long time. Yeah, that's got to be great, and that's and that's not a great, that's not a bad commute for you either. <laughs> Five minute walk. <laughs> I ride my bike out of laziness, not for exercise. It's so close, so yeah. Yeah, that's great. The um, you, you there's no, you if you took the subway, it would take longer probably. I don't know really, it would be impractical. I mean, it'd probably take longer to walk to and from the subway than the way the subways work in New York. Right, right. Then you have to, to go down to like Times Square. And no, I have to go east. I have to go like to the subway stop, which is even near my, it just wouldn't make sense. So I walk, yeah. So I teach at Columbia, which I like. It's a good, uh, you know, I, I always say that, that, that if you're a professor, you should like teaching, but you shouldn't like it too much. Yeah. You know, whenever you hear a professor who talks about how great his or her students are, there's something wrong. Like they're smart kids. There's not, no doubt about that. But they're not like, you know, they're just, they're students. They're, you know, they're doing their thing. And, right. Yeah, um, and then I, I feel like there's energies to the city, to different cities, especially since I went to L.A. and kind of like really experienced the energy of L.A. And then I realized that there was an energy to San Francisco that I didn't even notice because I was just in yeah. it too long. And how do you feel about the, the like the energy of uh, like New- I, I well I was just in New York for a couple weeks last month, so I'm just still stoked on that experience. Maybe that's what's going on. Anyway, what what's your take on the energy of cities? Well, you know, San Francisco has. I think a very strange energy because the thing that, 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 that I keep, and this I try to get this in the book a little bit, is that if you are from New York and if you know New York well, the thing that strikes you about San Francisco is just how small it is. It is about one-tenth the size of New York, but it has about as much diversity. 
And that is extraordinary. And, you know, that, that in 1978, you have thousands of people going out to Candlestick Park. You have the MAB. You have Dan White's angry constituents. You have Harvey Milk's, you know, gay, gay activists. And then tens of thousands of other people doing other things in one small city. At that time, fewer than 700,000 people. And that is part of the energy here, that, that you can walk for three minutes. I mean, we're in the Tenderloin now. If I walk for, you know, five minutes kind of north, well, west of here, I'm in Japantown. Another three minutes, I'm in the most, one of the most affluent neighborhoods in urban America, right? And, and, and whereas in New York, the neighborhoods are bigger. So you get to some of these neighborhoods, particularly, you know, now, you know, you get down to like South Brooklyn, these neighborhoods in South Brooklyn, and they feel like you're going to go on forever, which you don't encounter here. And, and, and New York, there is, there's always more intensity, even, even now. I mean, just, it's, it's more intensity. It is, it is faster paced for better and for worse. And it is still, I think it's still a place where people talk about work all the time. And San Francisco isn't. You know, and, and it's, you know, to, to, even, though, even though there is obviously the whole tech sector here and all this, there's still this feel here that, that San Francisco, New York is where you go to make money. San Francisco is you come after you have it, if you're, if you're in that kind of demographic. It's the different, you know, there's just, uh, the way, this, the shorthand I say is that I, when I, first of my life, I lived in, first half of my life, I lived in San Francisco, uh, San Francisco and my friends were constantly saying, hey, dude, mellow out. And then the last 20-odd years in New York, everyone's saying, how come nothing seems to stress you out, right? And, and part of the energy of New York is that you're supposed to be stressed out all the time, right? When you ask, and this is kind of, this is a little bit off, off topic, and but, but when you ask a New Yorker how they're doing, they'll say, I'm tired or I'm stressed. Whereas here, those are considered signs that like, you're not, if you're tired and stressed, that's, you're not, what's your, where's your life work balance at? What are you doing wrong? Whereas there, it's status. I'm tired, I'm stressed, I'm busy, our, our, our virtue, it's status signaling. Yeah, whereas here it's like if you're tired, maybe you should, you know, get some sleep or something. I don't know. Maybe you should eat better. You know, maybe you should address that because it is a problem that you're not sleeping well. And if you're so stressed out, again, maybe you should think if you're busy, you know, slow down, dude. No one in New York ever says slow down, dude, unless you're like yelling at a car that's coming at them. And they don't say dude, but. <laughs> yeah, they don't say dude. That's really intriguing. I didn't even, because I was, I was thinking, oh, if someone says they're tired, then, that, then I'm like, then I think, oh, they're just being honest. But it's actually a kind of a status thing right. where. I mean, you know, if someone says, hey, how are you doing? And I'm having an emotionally bad day. I'm like, well, I'm kind of fucked up right now. How are you? <laughs> saying I'm kind of fucked up is different than saying, and saying I'm busy, right? How are you doing? Busy? I, when I had young kids, my kids are now like, well, 18 and 20. But when I had young kids, I was always struck by how many, particularly men would say, I'm so busy. And these, are, these were wealthy men. I'm so busy, I barely have time to see my kids. And I was like, wow, dude, you should change your life. Well, if you're too busy to see your kids, that, that, you're making some mistakes, like real mistakes about your life. But, but, it, but they said it as a status symbol. And that's like gross status symbol because they should they should be like, oh you know oh I'm totally stressed because I'm spending way too much time with my kids and my kids are assholes. Right, sure. I, that would be better. That'd be cool, right? That was me. Yeah. Right. 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 Oh man, my fucking kids, man, they're driving me crazy. Are they gonna listen to this? Nihilist. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. My demographic is above fifty. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I have no idea what my demographic. And my kids don't don't listen to you know. Yeah. Don't listen to old people podcasts. I look at my Instagram feed every now and then. The um. But, it's, but it, it is, that's a sad sign of... I think it is, yeah. think it is part of the, the gestalt of, of New York that is different than here. Even with all the changes here, even with all the tech money and the opportunities to make big, make big money and the differences between the wealthy and the poor here, it is still a different feel here. And, and that's something that people who don't spend time in both cities don't, don't get. Interesting. I was uh, working, um, I was shadowing a director on a TV show 
and it was it was you know network tv show they had to get things done but what was great about it was he's like at 4 15 on friday i'm out because of my kids basketball game and it was just a hard out and that was like two times and it was and it was just like and do not get in touch with me over the weekend because i got this this and this and it was always about um the whole kind of crew was about oh no I, my daughter's doing this fine go do that it was i like the vibe of that it's much better i mean yeah and it's much more california than, than new york I mean, I think these are stereotypes, but there's yeah. there's a fair amount of truth. And I've lived a lot in both cities, probably more yeah. you know more than almost half, almost exactly half in both places. So. Yeah, yeah. I think I have some sense of that. All right, now pizza. You know, I don't eat dairy. <laughs> Good answer. All right. Uh, <laughs> now, now as, now as a Yankee fan, you have to hate the Boston Red Sox. Yeah. Is that right? So the, they are they should die like the scum they are. I, I, I'm not really the violent sports fan, <laughs> but I do hate the Red Sox. Um, I don't know when you're going to air this, but uh, December 26th is the 100th anniversary of the sale of Babe Ruth to the Yankees wow. from the Red Sox. So that's a big deal. I, I do hate the Red Sox. This airs on Wednesday. Okay, great. So tomorrow. Um, I, so that when it, I do hate the Red Sox. And, and I find that there is, it's a lot of, you know, the Red Sox, the, the difference between the Red Sox and the Yankees, they both spend a lot of money and try to win all the time and, you know, have kind of these unfair advantages because they have this huge fan base. But the difference is this. If you move to New York, like if you personally move to New York tomorrow yeah. and you're a Giants fan, everyone will be like, why are you a Giants fan? And you say, oh, because I grew up in San Francisco. They say, okay. Like that's the end of the conversation. Yeah. Or I moved there from Detroit. You've got Tiger's hat on. Oh, I'm, a tiger. I'm from Detroit. Fine. In Boston, like in New England, you're expected to be a Red Sox fan. And if you don't, like they give you shit even if, you know, you're from San Francisco. I'm a Giants fan my whole life. No, you got to be a Red Sox fan. This is so that 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 bothers me. And I think a lot of the the Red Sox have a lot of undeserved goodwill by teams who people who just hate the Yankees. And I'll tell you one story about the Red Sox. I was in a I was doing some work overseas, and uh, I have I had to I had a meeting early in the morning. I had to meet up with a, a guy uh, named Strobe Talbot. You know, Strobe Talbot was uh, very senior in the Clinton administration, and and he's a very smart guy. And, and uh, very accomplished, but very, very like, I don't know if it was actual, but, but uh, presented like very old wasp background, right? And, and I had, we were meeting and another guy was coming to meet us and a bunch of us were gathering and, and, and I had said to my friend who I was meeting, who was, you know, my colleague, I said, hey, before you leave the office, this is the internet wasn't that great. I said, could you just get the playoff scores, right? Because it was the, we were in uh, probably fall of 2002. So the Giants were in the playoffs against the, uh, I'm trying to think. No, I take that back. It was fall of 2003. No, it was 2002. No, it was 2003. The, I don't fucking remember. The Giants and the Red Sox were in the playoffs. So the guy, he comes and he's got the scores written down and he says, and he says, oh, and the Red Sox lost. And Strobe says, oh, the Red Sox, this is kind of like New England thing. And I said, and I said, I don't know what possessed me to say this. And I said, you ever notice? How you never see a Red Sox hat on a Jewish head or a black head. We don't need a baseball team to suffer. And apparently you're not supposed to say this to the guy who's on the short list to be next secretary, next secretary of state. And right when I said it, I was like, what have I done? And at which point, the U.S. ambassador to Georgia, within the country of Georgia, was there too with his wife. And she started laughing. <laughs> and that kind of saved me. But I think there's some truth to that. This kind of, I don't like the, the, narrow, the new, I mean, look, if you're from Boston and you're a Red Sox fan, fine. I can't, that's normal. That's but what they're supposed to that's, do. That's what they're supposed to do. But that, that exaggerated narrative of the suffering, you know, and, and, and that was always tiresome, especially as a Giants fan. You know, Giants went a long time without winning the World Series either. Not quite from 1918 to 2004, but 1954 to 2010 is a pretty long time too. Yeah. And no one ever talked about that. You know? It's kind of a 
badge of honor. We got the misfits. We're still sticking with these people no right, matter what. Right. And also they moved cities and there yeah. was, you know, the 1962 where they almost won. And the Red Sox had some pretty, I mean, that 75 World Series was a heartbreaker. The 67 World Series was a heartbreaker. 46 was a close World Series. So they had some heartbreak. But, you know, they, they also had a lot of success. They also made a lot of mistakes. I mean, you know, they decided they, did, they passed on the opportunity to sign Jackie Robinson because they, they didn't want an African-American player, but they said he wasn't good enough. I mean, that's silly, right? Um, they were the last team to get an African-American player, which is significant because it's kind of it's racist. But it's also significant because and the Yankees suffered for this too, but in the late 1950s, if you're still only signing white players, you can't compete, right? You lose your ability to compete because the teams, the good smart teams like the Giants are getting you know, Willie McCovey and Willie Mays and Juan Marshall and the Alou brothers and you're only looking at white players, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage, right? So there's a lot of that too. I loved it when we had Felipe Alou as the manager of the Giants. That was a lot of fun. I think Felipe Alou should be in the Hall of Fame. I'm gonna try. I think he's, you know, he's one of those guys who has half the resume as a player and you know, two th- another third as a manager and then because of the importance of who he was, he was, he was not the first Dominican born player because Ozzy Virgil Sr., uh, played for the actually for the Giants, but Felipe Alou was the first. Felipe Alou was the first Dominican player who grew up in the Dominican Republic to play here. Yeah, so he's a very and the first Dominican manager. I mean, he's a very influential. He wrote a very famous, interesting article in 1964 with a guy named with a guy, a sports writer named Arnold Haino, who was a quite extraordinary sports writer, called the Latin American Players Bill of Rights. And in the article, he talked. He wrote about or they wrote about together. Felipe Alou's experience of, of prejudice as a Latino. The stereotypes about Latinos, the way they were treated, the way they weren't treated equally as other players. This was 1964. Wow. And that was pretty groundbreaking. He was an interesting guy. Now I, I got to go look for that. Yeah, yeah and I, I got to read your other baseball books, too. I'm looking, I mean, you get the list of your books. That are just... yeah, I read three baseball books. The, the, last, the most recent one is the one you mentioned. Before that is book, one right before that was 2018, and it was called Baseball Goes West, the Giants... The Dodge, the Giants, and the Shaping the Major Leagues. And it's kind of a revisionist history of the teams moving west, moving away from this narrative of which you hear all the time, oh, that was terrible, you know, it was heartbreak, the end of our innocence, bullshit, 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 and really talking about how it made modern Major League Baseball possible, that move, how important it was. And the book before that, which was in 2016, that book was Kent State University Press. My current book is Rutgers. And in 2016, from, uh, from Temple University Press, a book called Will Big League Baseball Survive? Globalization, the end of television, youth sports, and the future of Major League Baseball. And it was really a kind of economics and political science look at, at the future of Major League Baseball and how and some of how the changing economic, technological, and political environment threatens it. I'm in. <laughs> Lincoln, thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Lincoln A. Mitchell on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, San Francisco Year Zero, Political Upheaval, punk rock and a third base base third place baseball team hey thanks for listening for all of 2019 i will see you next year in 2020 um have a great uh holidays christmas and great new year and uh let's uh let's all be virtuous for at least a week in january before we lose all virtue and retract back into gluttony drunkenness and uh what else i don't know Thanks for listening. Have a great week.